Missouri Governor Mike Parson just completed his second State of the State speech, and both Republicans and Democrats have a lot to say about the GOP chief executive's 2020 agenda. To break things down, St. Louis Public Radio's Julie O'Donohue and Jacqueline Driscoll join me to talk about Parson's big speech. We also chat with St. Louis Post-Dispatch reporter Jack Suntrup about how an unsuccessful medical marijuana campaign ran afoul with the Missouri Ethics Commission. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me from Jefferson City is my co-host on the podcast. Julie O'Donohue. And my other co-host, at least for this segment, Jacqueline Driscoll. Now, both Jacqueline and Julie are going to talk with me about Governor Mike Parson's State of the State Address. It was his second speech to a joint session of the Missouri General Assembly. I'll ask both of you, since both of you were there and got to see it live, what were your takeaway impressions of it? My first impression of it was it was a fairly traditional speech. Uh, He didn't take a lot of risks with it. I think he talked a lot more about gun violence than I actually expected him to. I thought he was going to stick mostly to talking about the budget because most of the briefings we got before the speech were about the budget. Uh, So I thought he talked about that a little bit more than I expected. I also thought he tried to convey that he understood the pain of people going through that issue more than I expected him to. Having said that, though, he pivoted pretty hard uh, towards not doing anything in terms of gun restrictions. Um, My overall takeaway was it was pretty similar uh, from other state of the state speeches that I've covered in the past. Um, Being in Illinois, just a state away, they do talk about the budget. But, you know, the unique thing about Illinois is they don't have to pass a balanced budget. So they can talk about all the spending that they would like to see. Um, So that was, you know... It was interesting and unique in in my past experience to see a governor so focused on like conservative spending and making sure that he's, you know, allocating funds for programs that he finds very important. Um, But overall, it it was it was long. It was a long speech. It was a lot of Governor Parson yesterday. But I think he did well. He appeased his party, and I think that his party uh, received it well. And I believe that they will try to um, make sure that his asks are something that are our priority for the upcoming session. Now, Julie mentioned the issue of gun violence. I'm going to play a rather long clip from Governor Parson when he addressed that point in his speech. We have come up with a solution to help combat violent crime, such as providing greater protection for victims and witnesses, providing more mental health resources and services, and finally, strengthening our laws to target violent criminals. We, we won't always agree, 
and there will always be issues that we each feel passionately about. But I am confident that by working together, the potential for our regions and the entire state of Missouri is even greater. What was noticeable to me was that third bullet point about strengthening laws to fight violent criminals wasn't very specific. Jacqueline, you actually had a chance to talk with the governor one-on-one on Thursday. Did he provide any more details about what he meant on that point? You know, not really. When I when he had that press conference several weeks ago now with the mayors of the four largest cities, we asked him specifically, what are you supporting? What are you saying that you're supporting? And he did say he wanted to see a state law that kept handguns out of the hands of minors. He wanted to see guns kept out of the hands of violent offenders and domestic abusers. The, these are often referred to as so-called red flag laws. Now, when I tried to pin him a little bit on that because I'd, I'd heard the governor say on our, our talk show, St. Louis on the Air, that the press took him out of context. That's what uh, Speaker Har relayed to Sarah Fenske um, from that meeting. So I tried to talk to him a little bit more specifically about that. For the record, what do you support? Now, he kind of backed away on that, I assume, with the 2020 election coming, with Republicans saying that they are not going to entertain any type of gun restrictions this legislative session. He's, he's moving away from it. But he did say he doesn't think criminals should have guns. So in a in a long-winded answer there, he is still saying he supports some of these so-called red flag laws. He just doesn't want them referred to as gun control, essentially. Julie, that was going to be my question to you. Is the disconnect that on this particular point that Parson doesn't like what he was talking about with the mayors being referred to as gun control, even though by definition, if you're keeping guns out of the hands of somebody, even if they're, they shouldn't have a gun, it seems like that's a literal definition of what's going on. So it's interesting because I think the vagueness of what he said is really hitting me right now, because when I heard that, I didn't think he was talking about gun restrictions at all. I thought he was maybe signaling that he was going to support some bills that would toughen and lengthen sentence sentences for violent crimes. There are a few bills like that in the General Assembly that have been filed Uh, One I'm thinking of off the top of my head is Representative Schroer, I think, has a bill. And I was like, is he going to go and sort of look at pushing stuff like we saw in the early 80s in this country, which was to, like, make sentences longer and make it more difficult to get parole? That's actually what I thought that was signaling. So I didn't even think that was talking about gun restrictions, which I think goes to the vagueness of what he was saying like what what does he mean by targeting violent criminals you know is what is he talking about and then i would just say like i when i talked yesterday with senate president pro tem shots about this he threw in there that like one of the things he considers to be a way of addressing violent crime is the st louis residency bill like allowing police officers to live outside St. Louis City because he thinks that that will increase the police force in St. Louis City. And I'm not sure I had thought of that residency bill as being something that I would put in a package that is supposed to, quote unquote, prevent violent crime. Another aspect of his speech that was notable was him alluding to the the fact that thousands upon thousands of children have lost Medicaid coverage over the last couple of years. I'm going to play a clip now from Governor Parson talking about that topic. 
while some in the press are eager to criticize the improved efficiency or outright broken for many years and unpredictability serving every Missourian who is paying for it. At the same time, opponents have been criticizing our increased accountability. Jacqueline, you've reported pretty extensively on this issue. What was your reaction when you heard the governor say that? Julie and I had sat through some briefings before his speech, and we had already heard this. So I wasn't totally surprised when I heard it in the chamber when he was actually giving his speech. The governor stands firm that this is a restructuring of government organizations, that this is cleaning up the system, and that there was a lot of fraud and abuse on the Medicaid system before. So when he you know, kind of plays that card, it seems a little disheartening because we are seeing kids, thousands of kids, 100,000 kids getting, losing their health care coverage. And while that may be a contributing factor that there are some kids, there are some families who just no longer qualify, we are getting examples in the media, in the press, we are seeing stories of kids who should be on it that are losing their health care coverage. So it, it was a little disheartening to hear that. Um, but, you know, it, it was something that I wasn't totally surprised to hear. Now, this topic was actually the sole thing that State Auditor Nicole Galloway focused on her rebuttal or response to Parsons' State of the State address. I'm going to play a clip from Galloway's response, which actually featured more than just Galloway, as, as Julie will explain in a, in a few minutes. Access to health care is a right, and you shouldn't have to decide, uh, you know, between putting food on the table for your family and getting the health care that you need for you or your kids. Governor Parson, he caused this problem, and in his state of the state, it is unlikely Governor Parson is going to address it or uh, provide a solution. So, Julie, I was not only surprised that Galloway didn't do a traditional straight-to-the-camera rebuttal as other people have done, but it was only focused on one topic, and that was children losing Medicaid coverage. What was your takeaway from Galloway's response, and, and what was your reaction to the stylistic and substantive choices that she made? I actually think the risk she took in not doing a straight-to-the-camera response was a good one to take from a political perspective from making an impact. I think those straight to the camera responses are tired and they are difficult to pull off and very few people pay attention to them. This video has a bit more of a chance of getting a lot of attention. It is likely something that people would share more on social media than just Auditor Galloway sitting next to like an American flag telling us about all the things she thinks are wrong with the Parson administration. I just don't think that's an effective way to communicate anymore. I actually thought having real people respond also worked. I think that that is easier than having one person on camera for two to three minutes. I mean, when was the last time you watched one person talking on camera into a you know, into a screen for two or three minutes. It's it's not an effective way to communicate. Um, I think it was also wise to focus on one issue, and I think she must have some idea that this is a winning issue for her, uh, that people losing health care, that children losing health care is a winning issue, and so she wants to draw attention to it. And I think rightfully she assumed he might avoid talking about it in the speech. I would like to say that 
uh, Director Richardson and the governor's staff yesterday, when they were talking about efficiencies in Medicaid, they weren't just talking about these children being removed from the rolls. They also claim that they are cracking down on providers who may be billing for things that they really shouldn't. They are trying to like streamline the billing system. So I think that that's like part of a whole. I don't think they say that that all of those savings are the result of children losing Medicaid. After all, children who are on Medicaid, 98% of that money is covered by the federal government. So it's actually not the state paying for most of it. Um, But yeah, I, I thought her response was effective. And I think our Slack channel immediately started talking about it when we saw it. I'm not sure we would have done that if she had done a more traditional response. I want to thank both Jacqueline and Julie for talking with me. Jacqueline is actually going to leave us now, but we'll be talking with you soon. Thank you. And now we're joined in our St. Louis studio by St. Louis Public Radio reporter Rachel Littman. Rachel, we got some developments for a 2021 election race this week. Tell us what happened in the melee for mayor part two. Part two, part three, part whatever you want to call this. Yes, uh, Kara Spencer, who is the alderwoman from the 20th Ward that's down in South St. Louis, Dutchtown, Grappo Park, Marine Villa, that area, announced that she will be challenging incumbent Mayor Lida Krusen for mayor. She came on St. Louis on the air to make that announcement. And yes, this is an incredibly early announcement. Filing for this race does not even open until November. You know, I believe in St. Louis. Um, St. Louis is uniquely poised to be the next fastest growing city in the nation. Our location, our history, our world-class institutions, our university sports teams, and, you know, especially uh, the people of St. Louis, our spirit, our grit, our soul. You know, we are a great old city, um, but we're broken in a lot of ways, and I'm running for mayor to fix that. Rachel, can you give me a sense of what what you see her base is and how that's different from Mayor Cruson's? So Mayor Cruson is a, kind of a traditional St. Louis Democrat, a lot of corporate law enforcement, labor support. Uh, I think Kara comes a little bit more from, you know, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. So they're not necessarily going to really eat into each other's base of support. The more interesting thing would be if Treasurer Tashara Jones jumps into the mayoral race. I think Jones and Spencer would have a tendency to take uh, votes away from each other more than Spencer and Cruson will take votes away from each other. Can you briefly give us an idea of what you think the mayor's weaknesses are? Like why she's vulnerable? I think public safety is probably the number one thing right now. If you run on a platform of we need to make the city safer and if you look at the raw numbers, serious crime is going up, police officer uh, hiring hasn't improved. When you've staked your campaign on that and then you haven't been able to show improvement in the ways that, you know, an average everyday citizen measures public safety, that's a vulnerability. And another thing goes back to 2017. I mean, even if you ask supporters of Cruson why she won, it's because Gregory F.X. Daly didn't run. Right. If Gregory F.X. Daly would have run, Cruson would have come in third or fourth because he would have swept the southwest side. Mm-hmm. So the fact that Kara Spencer, even though she comes from a very different political faction as Cruson or, or Daly, it, it will answer the question of what happens when there's two viable white candidates in mm-hmm. the race, which yeah. is why I find this this 
a, to be a pretty significant development. And I mean, again, it all just is going to also depend on who else jumps in. Remember, this is a twenty a March 2021 race that we are talking about here. That's plenty of time for other candidates to look at the field, look at fundraising, and you go, you know what? I have a shot, which would be unusual, I think, when an incumbent is running to get multiple potentially viable candidates into the race. Well, Rachel, thank you for joining us. We'll be right back after this message with St. Louis Post-Dispatch reporter Jack Suntrup. We're going to talk about a Missouri Ethics Commission opinion about a failed medical marijuana campaign committee. We'll be right back. And we're back on Politically Speaking with St. Louis Public Radio's Julie O'Donohue and St. Louis Post-Dispatch Capital Reporter Jack Suntrup. Jack, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about an article you wrote late last week about a Missouri Ethics Commission decision involving a failed medical marijuana initiative. And it had to do with the fact that this initiative, which I believe was called Proposition C, was there was a campaign committee, but the only source of this campaign committee was a 501c4 that didn't have to disclose its donors. What did the Missouri Ethics Commission decide and what did the MEC make this committee do? Back in May 2018, the Ethics Commission put out an advisory opinion um, that said that basically um, Missouri's campaign finance disclosure law, um, I'm I'm reading a direct quote from the Ethics Commission right now, but um, that the law contains prohibitions on making contributions to a committee with the intent to conceal the identity of the actual source of the contribution. So, Obscuring the source of a contribution is technically illegal under Missouri law is basically what the MEC was saying. So fast forward to last week and their um, their consent order that this PACS or this uh, nonprofit signed with the MEC um, forced the nonprofit to release all its donors um, to disclose all its donors. So so that same day the nonprofit Missourians for Patient Care Inc. Uh, posted a list of all its donors from the 2018 election cycle. And the the largest donor by far was um, uh, Rex Sinkfield and groups associated with him. So the Great St. Louis um, Inc. Um, donated $875,000 to this effort. And Rex and Jeannie Sinkfield donated $100,000. And um, so uh, they donated a 975 out of a, a about 1.4 million dollars that the group raised. So Jack, this is really interesting to me because I think it shows to what extent some of the top dollar political donors in Missouri, like Rex Singfield, are able to hide the money they're donating. I mean, he donates a lot of money that's easy, easily findable too. But he basically gave like close to a million dollars to this effort, and we would not have known if this nonprofit had not gotten in trouble with the Missouri Ethics Commission. So who knows how much money he's giving to various efforts because he can give a lot of money without us knowing, and not just him. I don't want to make it just about him. You know, um, other people can give a lot of money. Outsiders can give a lot of money. I know that in particular, George Soros and Mike Bloomberg and 
traditionally the Koch brothers are the types of people who get involved in sort of local politics in states that they're not, that they don't reside in. Yeah. So I think the next step or the next question for the MEC is, um, you know, what are they going to do about these 501c4s? So for people who don't often go to the Missouri Ethics Commission's website, basically when you support a cause or a campaign, um, you you set up a political action committee or a PAC, and um, you have to disclose all your donors. Um, So what this PAC was doing, the Missourians for Patient Care PAC, which Jason already mentioned, but they were accepting donations only from this 501c4 nonprofit. And the difference between a 501c4 nonprofit and a PAC is that the nonprofit does not have to reveal its donors. So the big question is, is the MEC going to go after these 501c4 nonprofits? I think this is the first time they have forced a nonprofit to re- reveal their donors. So the next question is, is what happens to other nonprofits operating in Missouri? Right. So people were giving money to the nonprofit, and the nonprofit was giving money to the PAC, and presumably the Ethics Commission decided you cannot just give money to a nonprofit that then gives money to a PAC just so you don't have to disclose that you're giving money to this cause. If you look back at some of the quotes um, the the organizers of this PAC and this nonprofit gave about a year ago, I mean, it was pretty obvious that their intention was to keep the identities of their donors secret um, because I asked uh, Travis Brown in 2018 why why they set up this this nonprofit in, in coordination with this PAC, and he said, why not? We need to raise money so we have a social welfare organiza- organization that supports the ballot committee. So... Um, and then months before that, he told our columnist Tony Messenger that um, that the group wanted to conceal donor identities because marijuana was still illegal under federal law. I think the reason that this story caught my attention is because I've been following 501c4 money and ballot initiatives for some time. Obviously, 501c4 money went into this marijuana initiative, but this marijuana initiative wasn't successful. There was also 501c4 money that went to help the Clean Missouri Initiative, although a lot of that was 501c4s connected to a rich person, so it's possible that just that rich person donated to them, but we don't know for sure. The one, though, that was really striking was the minimum wage initiative, where $4.6 million from a 501c4 called the 1630 Fund went to the minimum wage initiative, which passed. So was the mistake that the marijuana initiative made that they just didn't have other donors besides this 501c4? And if they would have just followed the minimum wage initiatives uh, lead by just having other donors in addition to their 501c4 money, then the donors may have still remained secret? Yeah, I think that's a fair question. And you would have to talk to the Missouri Ethics Commission. Unfortunately, they don't confirm or deny the existence of a complaint to the Ethics Commission, and then once their consent orders are released, they can't comment on the specifics of any case. And um, they won't comment on the specifics of really anything beyond what's in their consent order. Needless to say, I don't, I don't, I'm not aware of any ethics complaints related to the minimum wage question or Clean Missouri. Um, I know that um, former state rep Jay Barnes filed a uh, ethics complaint against uh, former Governor Eric Greitens's 
nonprofit, A New Missouri. Um, and it's it's kind of related in that he accused the um, nonprofit of intentionally obscuring donors in violation of Missouri law. So that ethics complaint is more than one and a half years old right now. Um, the only reason we know about it is because Jay Barnes said that he filed it. Um, and uh, that's one of the things we're waiting on. So it'll be interesting to see where the MEC comes down on that because um, a, a new Missouri has has operated at, as a nonprofit. It, it's a little different. They weren't donating to a PAC affiliated with Eric Greitens. They were kind of just directly spending money. Um, so I'm I'm interested to see how they'll come down on that. But there's lots of different machinations that these um, nonprofits have used, obviously, and and um, this is just one instance of the MEC policing them. So I don't know where they're gonna how they're gonna handle other groups. I think there's also an optical question too. Missouri Democrats have taken a very vocal stand against so-called dark money, which is the term that is used to describe spending by 501c4s. I think that a lot of Democratic-leaning people were kind of gleeful that Sinkfeld was able to be exposed as the main donor to this initiative, even though I don't think medical marijuana is necessarily falls on the liberal conservative continuum. But when you ask a lot of Democrats about 501c4 money that went to help the minimum wage initiative or even the Clean Missouri initiative, they they kind of get a bit defensive about it and say, you know, yeah, it's happening. We don't like the rules, but we're not going to unilaterally disarm. But it seems like that posture just kind of continues this cycle of not being able to find out how these ballot initiatives are funded. Yeah, it's kind of like um, an arms race. It's like your opponent is using this tactic. So I'm going to use it too. Um, I'm thinking specifically, this isn't related to dark money, but um, after the uh, 2016 ballot initiative that, that limited campaign contributions, you saw this proliferation of PACs. And um, by both Republicans and Democrats. So basically, um, the amount of money that candidates can accept directly is limited now. And so all these PACs started popping up, which can accept unlimited amounts of money, and those PACs support the candidates. So it's almost like the, the 2016 initiative um, didn't have the desired result that, that the proponents were seeking. But yeah, I, I think that both parties have have used dark money to their advantage. I don't think that there's any debate about that. Thank you so much, Jack, for joining us to talk about this important topic. You can read more of Jack's articles in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch by going to stltoday.com or picking up a newspaper at your local grocery <laughs> store across the, the state or the region. How can people follow you on Twitter, by the way, Jack? It's easy. It's just Jack Suntrup, S-U-N-T-R-U-P. Thank you very much, and we'll be back right after this quick break. And now we move to our final segment of the show, which we lovingly call Show Me Something. I'm going to turn the questioning over to Julie because this is about a story that I did. And the last thing I want to do is talk to myself for five minutes. Julie, take it away. (laughs) So this week, the Oscar nominations came out and there was uh, a couple pieces of good news for St. Louis. One of those pieces was that 
The documentary St. Louis Superman was nominated in the short doc category. That film is about former state representative Bruce Franks. Jason, can you tell us a little bit more about this film and about Bruce? The film chronicles Bruce Franks' journey from being a battle rapper and a protester in the movement that came about after Michael Brown's shooting death in Ferguson to serving in the Missouri General Assembly. It was a tumultuous journey, not only to get elected because he had to actually do a redo election against an incumbent, but his, his, his tenure in politics was, was challenging, to say the least. I can say from seeing the trailer and from reading about it, and also by reading about the other awards it's gotten, it's been very well received. And obviously the fact that it was nominated for an Oscar showcases that this is a very high quality film about a very intriguing political figure in Missouri. Not every politician gets a film made about them, and uh, certainly not every state representative gets this type of attention. What makes Bruce Franks so special? Because he does seem to have a much higher profile than your typical state representative. I think it's because partly he had a, a following before, both as a Ferguson protester and a battle rapper. I also just think that his his style of communicating and kind of the way he navigated politics was different. It wasn't something that gained him universal popularity because even when you talk with him, he would acknowledge that he made a lot of enemies during his tenure in politics. But I, when I was talking with him, he he gave me this reaction about when he found out he was nominated. And I do think it's it's really telling about his experience within the world of Missouri politics. I was watching and they announced our names. I like jumped across the room. I was yelling. I was happy. I was screaming. I was I was so excited. I was pumped. And then I just started crying because I remember where I was at a year ago. And I remember like a year ago in my head, I thought it was better off for me not to even be on this earth. And a year later, um, we are nominated for Oscar. I'm healthy. I'm doing well. Life is good. What Franks was referring to there was his resignation in 2019 from the Missouri House to tend to his mental health. And I think that even people that may not have been super fans of Bruce Franks' political career were probably happy to hear something like that, that he is doing better, that he is taking the steps to improve his mental health. Because even before Missouri politics, he has dealt with a lot of really tragic and difficult things that a lot of people don't go through, whether it be the death of his brother or whether it be the shooting death of a lot of his friends. Okay, well, the documentary about Bruce Franks is called St. Louis Superman, and we'll be watching the Oscars to see how it does. Thanks, Julie, for taking over the questioning. You can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. Our executive editor is Shula Newman. Our news editor is Fred Ehrlich. And John Larson is our sound engineer. You can find me on the World Wide Web at Jay Rosenbaum on Twitter. You can find Jacqueline on the World Wide Web at Driscoll NPR. You can find Rachel on Twitter at rlipman, two Ps, two Ns. And how can people follow you on Twitter, Julie? At J.S. O'Donohue. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. I'm